welcome to Conversations About Life. Thanks, Stephen, for being a guest on my podcast. Thanks for having me. So I met you at a breakfast. It was Legacy Builders Breakfast. And um, you were sitting at the table with me. And so I, I remember that you have a background in prison ministry. Mm-hmm. And yes. now it's just talking with you. You're in grad school now uh, for business and thinking about um, going into seminary, right? Yeah, it's an idea I've been toying with uh, really just for the last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, I spent about five years at Mission Gate doing prison ministry and, you know, left there to get my MBA, my Master in Business Administration, so I could be a full-time student and, you know, thought about law school, so I've been studying for the LSATs and kind of realized that that's not the avenue I want to go. You know, I've been trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life because, you know, Mission Gate was great and I love the work that I did there, but as the program director for the city program, it was, that kind of job you can't do full-time for the rest of your life. Cause it's a 24 hour, seven day a week job, mm-hmm. you know, at least that position where you live on site, you know, there knocks on the door 24 seven calls at three in the morning from new guys at bus stops. And, you know, you work 80 hours a week minimum. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, you get burnt out really easy and I was burnt out, but so I've been toying with trying to figure out what I want to do with the rest of my life. And, kind of just been going through process of elimination like well I don't want to do this I don't like that and all roads kind of lead to getting back into ministry mm-hmm. you know that's really my passion it's really what I love um, so you mentioned prison so <coughs> is it prison or jail or uh, so both both yeah. okay and so and then are you from this area here no uh I kind of joke and tell people I'm not really from anywhere. Uh, you know, I was born in Kansas in 85, lived there for a whole, I think, six months before we moved. And we moved every few years because of my dad's work. And then... Uh, what kind of work was he in? So he worked for Fox, the the locals, oh. the local station. So um, his job was they would say, you know, hey, like Fox 2 in St. Louis, for example, it's doing horrible. You know, it's... Number four out of four in the in the ratings. So they would send him to Fox Two. He'd be the GM, and he'd restructure, fire, hire, he'd bring it up to number one in the area. And then they go, hey, you know, Fox Twelve down in Phoenix. You know, they're they're garbage, and they need to be restructured. So you know, it wasn't a military brat, but kind of that every three years or so we would move. Right. Uh, I guess I would consider Evansville, Indiana, my hometown. Okay. That's where he, he passed away from cancer when I was thirteen. And so I went to middle school and high school there. And so that's, you know, my sister still lives there. I got a lot of friends that lived there from high school. So if, if I ever had a hometown, it would have been Evansville. But all my family on my mom's side lives in St. Louis. And so in 2015, I decided to move here to kind of plant some roots because after high school, I became a seasonal chef. So I would work at resorts and country clubs and things like that that are too exotic for normal people to afford to live. 
Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it'd be a situation like you go up to Martha's Vineyard for six months and, you know, you're a sous chef there and they put you up in employee housing. And then, you know, once their season ends, you know, you follow the snowbirds is what we would call them. Mm-hmm. You know, the people who go down to, to Florida in the winter and then they go up to North Carolina in the summer and that kind of thing. So did that for 18 years. 18 years? Wow. Yeah. Uh, my whole life fit into two suitcases at that time because, you know, they'd put you up in employee housing and they'd pay really good. Uh, but, you know. So always, you were a chef for 18 years, huh? Yeah. Wow. That's, it's strange. My resume reads, uh, you know, sous chef and then uh, prison ministry and recovery. Like those are the only two things I've ever done. <laughs> what's, so sous, what's the sous stand for? Uh, a sous chef is, it's S-O-U-S. It's basically the assistant chef. Okay. So. When you think of it, think of it like this: the executive chef is typically the owner of a restaurant. Okay. If he's not the owner, then he's in charge of the kitchen. He typically will create the menu, do all the ordering, and all that, and kind of more of an administrative role. And then he'll go to the sous chef, the guy who kind of runs the kitchen, and he'll say, "Hey, here's the menu. Get this done ready for tonight." And then the sous chef will go to everybody else and delegate everything to them. Mm-hmm. Typically, the executive chef will just come on the line during service usually to expedite, to check plates as they go out, you know, but he doesn't really cook or prepare anything or clean up afterwards. You know, as soon as service ends and the restaurant closes, he goes back into the office, you know? Mm -hmm. So everyone would always say it's the sous chef's kitchen. You know, he really runs the place, but I've heard that um, being a chef is hard work. It is. Yeah. You know, there's a big difference between being a chef and a cook. You know, a lot of people will say like, Oh, you know, you know, my wife loves to cook. She's a really great chef. And it's like, well, no, like cooking is one thing. Like, she loves to cook. Hey, she's a great cook. That's fine. But being a chef is really more about management and delegation. It would be like, you know, if your wife came over to my house and then brought seven other people with her and said, you make this, you make this, you make that, you make that, and all put it together, you know, then she would be a good chef. Right. Yeah. Excuse me. So do you like uh, food? Do you still like working with food and so forth? Not really. To be honest, I never really did like it. Okay. It was always, well, it was always just kind of a job. Uh, You know, I started as a line cook in high school because I needed a job. And it was actually a high school dropout and then just kind of went into the workforce. And, you know, it was was a skill that came easy to me, came naturally to me. you know, never went to culinary school. I, I opted for apprenticeships instead. I always feel culinary school is the biggest waste of money hmm. that you can ever use. You know, in culinary school, they'll they'll sit you down, they'll teach you how to make a dish, and they'll give you an hour to prepare it, and then you'll make one dish, and they'll taste it, and they'll say, "Hey, good job," and they'll give you a grade. But in reality, you have fifteen minutes to prep thirty of those, and then you got to move on to the next thing. Yeah, you know, and. Most people, I think it's something like 70% of people who go to culinary school never actually worked in a kitchen. And so when, once they graduate and they dump 20 grand into this degree and they go work in a kitchen and realize they hate it, they can't yeah. handle the stress, you know, because right. it's always now, you know, everybody's always wanting stuff now and it's right. high pressure, right. high intensity the whole time. Right. Yeah. So what led from culinary work to jail and so forth if that's something you're okay with talking about oh yeah definitely uh so 
you know, my like I said, my dad kind of passed away when I was uh, 13. And so after that, I was, you know, in a lot of pain. And so I turned to drugs and alcohol as a teenager uh, from a very young age and really, really enjoyed it. And so uh, those 18 years I was a sous chef, I would describe myself as a functioning addict, you know, whether it was alcohol or marijuana or cocaine, whatever it might be. Uh, I had to use something every day and didn't really matter what it was, but I could still go to work. I could still pay my bills. I could still lead some semblance of a normal life. And looking back on it, I kind of see these, my addiction would, would go in these waves where like, you know, when I was a teenager, marijuana was my drug of choice. My early twenties, it was alcohol. My mid twenties, it was cocaine, you know, and my late twenties, it was hallucinogens. And, you know, knowing what I know now about the scriptures, I, you know, Solomon in Ecclesiastes talks about this hole in your heart that's the size of eternity. And, you know, only something eternal can fill it. I think it's 316. It's right after the, the, the birds song, you know. Right. Like there's, he said, eternity in our hearts. I remember that line. I, I've never been real clear on just what that means, but um, I, I know what you're referring to, though. Mm-hmm. So it's at the end of that famous, you know, time for this, a time for that section. And, mm-hmm. you know, he says a few things. He says, you know, God's set eternity in man's hearts so that they will not know the work that God is doing. And, right. you know, it talks about how God's made everything beautiful and appropriate in its own time. Uh, you know, that kind of idea of, you know, that list, you know, it's time for killing and a time for healing. And yeah. a lot of people treat that list like a buffet. You know, like, oh, I'll take some of this, you know, leave that, you know. Yeah. I'll take the time to build up. No, we don't need to destroy. Um, but really, it's a list of things from God. You know, it's the <clears throat> best way I could describe it is, like, do you like cake? Do I like cake? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I like cake, yeah. Do you like flour? Like uh, that you make a cake with? Yeah. Would you like to eat a bowl of flour right now? You know, I'm kind of odd. Sometimes I'll take a little flour, mix a little olive oil in it, a little some spices, nuts, and I eat it with some... I like dough. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, no. That's that's fine. But no, okay. just just regular flour. Oh, probably not, flour. not just by itself, probably. Yeah, and nobody does. Uh, but you can't have cake without flour. Yeah. And... But, you know, one interpretation of that text is, I think I heard from Matt Chandler was, you know, about how he said eternity in your heart. It's kind of this idea of deep down in your heart, you know that something's wrong here. Like you live in a broken world and you know you shouldn't. Like part of you remembers, you know, what it was like before, you know, something like that. And, you know... If, so I kind of would view it as this hole in my heart the size of eternity. And throughout, you know, my entire life, I was just trying to cram it and fill it with other things, you know. Let's try it with drugs. Let's try it with women. Let's try it with money. Let's try it with gambling, you know. And mm-hmm. so I tried it with marijuana for a while, and then I tried it with alcohol. That didn't work. Well, maybe cocaine will, and nothing ever did. Uh, so I get tired of moving around a lot, and I moved here in 2015. And that was when my drug of choice shifted again. Uh, to methamphetamine. Hmm. I had never really tried it before, but mm-hmm. uh, once I did, realized I loved it. And it was right around that time that I discovered my gambling addiction as well. Hmm. You know, with the five casinos, you know, all within a 30-minute drive of wherever you are in the city. 
And so it didn't take long for, you know, I was a functioning addict and then that functioning part kind of went away and I just became an addict. And there was about a two, two and a half year period of my life where I was essentially a career criminal. I was, you know, I would sell drugs. I was selling large amounts of drugs. I was stealing cars. I was breaking into homes and burglarizing. I was stealing people's identities. I I was a con man in every sense of the word. I would do whatever I needed to do to get what I wanted. And did you have to do these things to support your drug and gambling um, addiction? Or did you just choose to do these things as far as like the crime and so forth? It started as to support my addictions. Okay. Yeah, it was... More like, you know, hey, I need, you know, I want to buy, you know, $500 worth of drugs and right. I got $50 on me. What do I do? Okay. You know, we'll go out there and find someone with 400 something dollars and right. take it from them or trick them into giving it to you, whatever it might be. Sure. Okay. Uh, you know, and it, it, it all kind of snowballed from there, you know, it, you know, got out of hand really quickly. Uh, a lot of the victims of my crimes were my family. Mm-hmm. You know, I stole tens and tens of thousands of dollars from them, you know? And so paying it like this, you know, those were people I claimed to love. Mm-hmm. What do you think I'd do to strangers? Mm-hmm. And led to me being homeless twice on the streets. You uh, still have the bridge I-70 that connects from, you know, like Maryland Heights into St. Charles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to live under that bridge two or three days a week. Mm. Uh, I gambled so much in the casinos that the year when I was homeless, uh, I got four nights comp to Hollywood Casino. So I'd live in the hotel there for four nights and then sleep under the bridge the other three. And Because you were using so much money at the casinos? Is that what you said? Is why you, they gave you the rooms? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was... Uh, you know, they got rewards programs. Yeah. You know, a little card. They track everything that you spend there. And so it's kind of strange how it works because you could go in with $100, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, put $100 into the slots, let's say, you know, and it'll go down to 20, right? But then you win a lot and it goes up to 500, mm-hmm. you know, and then you lose some and it goes down to 200. So you could walk in with 100 bucks and then walk out with 50. But according to their system, you gambled $3,000. You know, because of the up and down that it goes. So they always base your current rewards, or at least this is how they used to do it, on your previous year. So the year I was homeless, you know, when things got bad, well, the previous year I gambled half a million dollars there. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And so that's why I was their highest tier. They gave me four nights a week comped at the hotel. Wow. I could go to the buffet seven days a week for free. Got all kinds of rewards, so... Ironically enough, it kept me alive yeah. <laughs> for a long time. Yeah. Uh, but again, not knowing, not not that I would die if I didn't have it. You know, I just I wasn't ready to have help, but the help I did want, I'd always want on my terms. You know, and so I was looking at another winter uh, on the streets, and was trying to talk to my mom and trying to con her out of money or clothes, something like that. And she said that, uh, you know, we're done. We're not going to talk to you until you turn yourself in. And I had been picked up for questioning, you know, a dozen times on other crimes, but, you know, nothing, no charges were ever filed because I just would never say anything. 
you know, I wouldn't say anything in the interrogation room and they could never charge me, but I, uh, I'm just tired, you know, addiction is so exhausting and, you know, living on the streets like that, you know, trying to figure out where your next hundred bucks is going to come from or your next bag's going to come from, it just drains you. So, uh, that's what I did. I turned myself in. Uh, I confessed, uh, you know, I was charged with four felonies. The, they're all felonies that I committed against my family. Hmm. A couple burglaries, uh, a couple ste- uh, one stealing, and uh, res- tampering with a motor vehicle, which is essentially stealing a car. And you know, so, does someone need to press charges in order for that to, you to do that to turn in? Were they pressing charges, or does that not even play in? It you can just turn yourself in. Say I did these things, and you know. Well, so. They don't really need you to press charges, okay. but um, so let's say you know I break into your house and steal a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, you're going to call the police probably, file a police report. Mm-hmm. Well, you know now that the police know about it, they know that hey, someone committed a felony here, and so whenever they find them, you know if the prosecutor wants to press charges, which more than likely they do, okay, they will. Even if you say no, 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 don't. I see. They'll say too late. The state's already picked it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I don't know if they, you know, I never really talked to them about that. I don't think, they want, They just wanted me to get better. They wanted right. me to learn from my mistakes. But, yeah. you know, again, regardless, the state was already very interested in pursuing these charges. Right. Um, There's a lot of other crimes that they wanted to talk to me about. And, you know, I, I couldn't really confess because I didn't remember because I did so much, you know. So they'd be like, oh, you know, on April 13th, were you, know, were you in this neighborhood and did you break into this house was, man, I don't know maybe probably you know can I say definitively no I don't remember you know mm-hmm. I was you know way too high all the time but you know yeah it sounds like something I'd do like but they never charged me with any of that they just charged me with those four felonies and so that's what led me to jail okay yeah okay and then how long were you in jail Six months. Six months, okay. Mm-hmm. Had really no idea what, what I was facing. Like, I had, I've been arrested dozens of times, uh, never for anything as serious as felonies before. Okay. A lot of it was being picked up for questioning. Maybe five or six other times was, you know, thrown in the drunk tank for the weekend, that kind of thing. Uh, I'd never been arrested in Missouri, you know, moving around a lot, was arrested, you know, in other states, but, so I had no idea what I was even looking at, but I knew, like, hey, you know, I'd get some rest for a few months and wouldn't have to worry about food, and, uh... So that was, like, the county jail for six months? Yeah, that was St. Louis County Jail, the one in Clayton. Okay. So you have to, um, go off drugs for six months, right? Yes. Okay. So, it seems like that might be a hard aspect of it i mean getting some rest yeah but like you're you know you have like a maybe a bodily addiction i don't know you do yeah but uh you know luckily with at least with meth it's not as bad as heroin okay uh you do have a bodily addiction but i mean even when you talk to addicts who've been addicts for years and have to use a lot of drugs every day a lot of them will tell you i hate this i want to stop but i can't Mm -hmm. and so when you're put into a situation where you have no choice, you know, it 
makes it easier, or at least yeah. it did for me. Right. You know, knowing I'm locked in this room, like, don't want to get high? Yeah, but I can't, you know, I couldn't even have a cigarette, you know. That was that was probably the worst part of it, to be honest with you. That was a lot harder, not get, not having to yeah. smoke cigarettes than, than the meth. Um, yeah. Luckily, though, the, the body with meth, it, it bounces back fairly quickly. It, I basically slept for three days, mm-hmm. you know, and I would wake up and I would eat and I would want to eat a lot. I was starving all the time. Mm-hmm. And so that was it, you know. But people like who are detoxing from heroin, mm-hmm. that's, they have a tough time in there. Yeah. You know, they have the shakes, they are sweating a lot, they can barely move, there's pain all over their body. Yeah. Um, so what happened then? So six months, and then what's what's next then? So as I'm sitting there, you know, after a few weeks, I'm just getting bored out of my mind. You know, it's, so it works as, you know, or at least at this jail, you know, you've got your cell. And you're basically on what they call lockdown for 16 hours a day. You got to think, you know, eight hours is sleeping right at night. You got the eight hours sleep time. And then during the day, the other 16, eight hours you're in your cell where you can't get out. And the other eight, you're in what they call the day room, which is kind of like the common area where people would play cards or watch TV, things like that. And so be in the day room, but day room would get boring, you know, the you could never watch anything that you wanted to on TV. It was always either sports or believe it or not, they would always watch like the Kardashians okay. or the bad girls club just cause they would want to see beautiful women, you know? Mm-hmm. And, but I'll give you this as far as going to jail, St. Louis County jail is a great jail in terms of their programming. Like they do offer GED tutoring and prep. Uh, they offer classes and church services throughout the day. Okay. And wow. so they would, most of it's religious services. Uh, hmm. You know, one of them, I took a creative writing class, like, hmm. and so you would, you know, they had, how it works is, you know, each floor, they've got eight floors, and so on a floor there's four pods, and so you'd be in a pod, but in the middle part, you know, they had classrooms that you could go to and things like that. So that's where all these things were held. So after a few weeks, I started going to church services just to get out for a minute because I was bored out of my mind. Mm-hmm. And the the classrooms had windows, so you could look out the window, yeah. you know, and see the sky and, mm-hmm. and things like that. And uh, yeah, going to church services was interesting because at that point in my life, I was atheist. You know, I I was raised Catholic. Okay, I, I went to Catholic school most of my life. Okay, wow. Uh, you know, I was raised in a Catholic home. But I would say I was raised in a home that didn't know Jesus. Okay. You know, that, not saying all Catholics are like that, but that's how our family was. It was going to church on Sunday was more a social status symbol. Okay. You know, it was, we'd all be dressed up in the nice clothes and it's, you know, look at us. We, you know, family's got it together, you know. And yeah, it was, you know, grew up in upper white middle class neighborhoods and, um, you know, a lot of kids will tell you, like, you know, maybe when you were a kid, you know, and you'd hear the story of Noah's Ark or, or Daniel and the Lion, you'd kind of be filled with awe and wonder, you know, and, wow, that's cool. And I was never one of those kids that would, you know, I, for the beginning part of my life, I just kind of took it at face value, like, it is what it is. Like, I went to church on Sunday, same reason I went to school on Monday, because mm-hmm. I had to. Yeah. I didn't have a choice. And... 
after my dad died, any kind of faith that I had in God was gone. So how did the death um, figure into that or affect that? As far as I was concerned, God killed my dad. Okay. You know, he, he died from pancreatic cancer, mm. and he was diagnosed before I was even born. Okay. And he was bedridden for most of my life. I've got a few memories of like going to the movies with him or going bowling or helping him build a deck. There's a, there's a few of those, but Mm -hmm. uh, for most of my life he would be sitting on the couch or in the bed and Hmm. couldn't get up very often. Uh, The last three years that he was alive, he'd spend anywhere between six to 10, six to eight months out of the year in hospitals Mm -hmm. and wasn't even at home. Yeah. And you know, so, my dad actually died five times. Wow. Uh, the fifth time he stayed dead, you know, and uh, he, you know, I didn't know this until years later, but my mom told me he had, you know, out-of-body experiences, you know, and kind of freaky to think about, you know. You know except the first couple times he would just be kind of like floating above himself, and but he would be able to, you know, tell the doctors like what was going on when he was dead, you know? So like, so he was declared dead by the doctors? Well, flatlined. Flatlined. You know, okay. your, your heart's not pumping. They're trying to, you know, resuscitate I you. I see. Okay. You know, dead for, you know, a minute here. Or I see. Whatever it might be. And so. And he experienced something during those times. So. Yeah. And the fourth one was the big one where they, you know, he's going into surgery and they told my mom, like, he's probably not going to make it. Mm-hmm. And my mom said she was in the chapel all night and she, you know, prayed and prayed and prayed. My little brother was just born. And so she had asked, you know, God to just let me keep Ray until, you know, my Bradley, my little brother, graduates kindergarten. You know, give me at least a few years to figure this out. Mm-hmm. And so that was the one where my dad said that he he was there. Like, you know, these were just stories my mom told me. I never heard them straight from him, but mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes, he said he was there. He was in heaven, and they told him it wasn't his time, whoever they are, mm-hmm. and he did not want to go back. Hmm. And uh, I think he was dead for like three or four minutes that time, hmm. like a long while. Like mm-hmm. you, should, you should be brain dead long while. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so my dad died a week after my brother got out of kindergarten. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. And we knew it was coming. You know, we got to, to say our goodbyes. You know, the, the last conversation I had with, you know, with him, we were all crying. And, you know, and he kept telling us not to cry because he knew where he was going. You know, he'd say, I feel sorry for you. You're the one that has to be here. Like, mm-hmm. this place sucks. Like... And he was talking about all the uh, the angels, you know, floating around. You know, we're looking around. There's wallpaper with flowers on it, you know. Uh, a couple hours after that, I think he slipped into a coma. Mm-hmm. And then about four or five days later was when he passed. And so, yeah, so, you know, God didn't have to do it. You know, God killed my dad. That was my, you know, mm-hmm. preteen teen logic. And... And that's like after your mom told you about the experiences he had, or, or, or no? No, uh, okay. I, I didn't find out about those till like in my early twenties. Okay. Um, 
maybe late teens, something like that, but several years, uh, I just, you know, was full of anger. I was full of depression and hating God or anything God related. And now I got to go to Catholic school mm-hmm. and I got to take theology every semester, mm-hmm. you know, and I have to go to mass at school twice a week. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Sundays with the family. So it's, you know, it's just getting crammed down my neck and hated every minute of it. So I really started to rebel. You know, I, none of the priests, I don't, I don't think any of the priests there liked me. <laughs> you know, I really put that, you know, love everyone to the test. Mm-hmm. I had a permanent seat in the assistant principal's office. Uh-huh. Hmm. Would argue and debate everything I could with them about scripture and you know, as much as it pains me to admit this, um, but it's true. Uh, so we got to deal with it. You know, my rebelliousness against God continued all the way into my twenties and thirties, and it only got worse. Uh, for most of my life, I would take the, you know, the limited knowledge I had of the Bible and, you know, the Catholic Church and how that worked, and I got real sick pleasure out of like destroying people's faith, poking holes in their faith <laughs> and their theology. And, you know, I thought it was all, I I was atheist or agnostic depending on my mood Mm -hmm. and depending on what philosophy I was currently buying into, you know, I would read about, you know, Buddhism. And I remember getting into Alan Watts for, for a long time. If you ever heard of him, who said Alan Watts? No, I don't know. He was this philosopher from the seventies who would kind of take Eastern and Western and mix them together and. I'm having trouble remembering the long technical term for it, but that idea that I'm God, you're God, everyone's God, mm-hmm. you know, that was pretty much what he taught. Okay. And uh, I got into that for a long time and, you know, just had these peaks and valleys of what I would believe, but I always thought, you know, the Judeo-Christian faith was just garbage, you know, it was all lies. Um, and so that's the attitude I have when I'm in jail, you know, mm-hmm. and I start going to church services and just to get out and I'm not really participating. I'm just listening, you know, and which is what a lot of guys do. And, you know, one of the volunteers, uh, from mission gate, mission gate would come into the jail three times a week, uh, at least on my floor they did. Mm-hmm. And one of them gave me a Bible and I still have it. It's still the, you know, my, my workhorse, my daily Bible. And he was like, you know, just just read it, you know. What else you got to do? You read books in there? And I was like, yeah, I read. And he's like, well, just read this. And because I'd never read, read the Bible. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I took theology every semester, you know, from fourth grade to 12th grade. But the Bible was never a part of the classroom. Oh, really? Wow. It was church doctrine. Okay. You know, I don't, I don't know how much you know about the, the Catholic Church. You know, I started reading the Catholic Catechism, and I was kind of like pleasantly surprised by how warm and devotional it was. You know, I, I just kind of read the first part of it, mm-hmm. and I didn't uh, stick with it. But um, so I know a little bit about that. I've talked with Catholics, mm-hmm. and basically that's what I know. <laughs> you know, and so I, I know a lot about the Catholic Church. I mean, they drilled it into me for several years, you know, but. Just a lot of the, you know, like the ecumenical councils. I think there was okay. 21 or 22 of them. 
Oh, okay. I guess it depends on how you count it. You know, I was thinking more like around five, but, you know, I guess um, there could probably is quite a bit more I'm not, not familiar with. It's in, it's in the 20s. I know that. I don't okay. remember the exact number. The most recent one was Vatican II. Okay. So when I'm thinking ecumenical, I'm thinking of like before this, any kind of split where it's like the whole church, okay. the whole Christian church. But um, so. That would be ecumenical in a sense of the whole Catholic, Roman Catholic Church, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when they look at those and, and, and their number being like like Vatican II, for example, like what's discussed there is equal to Scripture. I see. Right. And so you don't have just the Bible. You've got like 23 of them. Right. You know, and, um, you know, the idea of the Pope being infallible, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's only like 100, 150 years old. Okay. You know, the and, and in the 1700s, right. they didn't teach that, you know, so yeah. it's just, you know, interesting. I would learn more about the doctrine than I would about the scriptures. And right. We would talk about stories here and there, and uh, but, you know, even the, the, the sacraments, which I don't really believe most of them are even based on the Bible, you know, like, you know, like last rites, um, you know, first, second, and third Holy Communion. I don't think, well, maybe there's not a third, second, you know, confirmation. Confirmation is essentially a believer's baptism. Okay, right. You know, the Catholic Church, you get baptized to wash away original sin. Right. Because if you don't, then you go, then a baby dies without being baptized, they go to limbo. Okay. Which is just this kind of weird middle ground, you know, where they just kind of float around. and Because... Hmm. The original sin that you're born with hasn't been washed away. That's what baptism does. And then, do they call it limbo or? Yeah, well, yeah. If an unbaptized baby, yeah, they, it's the, we'll their, limbo their word for it. Okay, uh, it's kind of like it, it branched off of purgatory. Okay, like even purgatory is only like six hundred years old. Okay, you know, it's kind of bred out of this idea of, you know, some some monks I believe sitting around like, well. You know, well, what happens if you're not good enough to go to heaven, but you're not bad enough to go to hell? Mm-hmm. You know, and the question itself is flawed. We're all bad enough to go to hell. Mm-hmm. You know, that's period. And none of us are good enough to go to heaven. That's the answer to the question. Yeah. You know, but so that's when they came up. Well, you go to this middle ground and, you know, people got to pray for you and um, pay your sins off. You know, it's like Jesus died for your sins, but, you know. Like ninety percent of them, you still got ten percent that you need to work off, and, and you know you might be in purgatory for a year, a week, ten thousand years. Who knows? Yeah. Um, and that's a doctrine that they heavily teach still to this day. Right. Um, so I, you know, I'm not Catholic, and I, tr- I, so I, I've tried to be like pretty sympathetic t- toward them, or like try to um, at least, though I would disagree think, figure out the reasoning behind what they believe. So I kind of have thought about purgatory as like, well, so like, um, as a Protestant Christian would believe that, you know, we are justified before God, but he still is working on us to work that out. So like, we typically might call it sanctification or something. So I thought, well, purgatory, maybe that's just believing that, well, it goes on beyond this life. Um, you need uh, God is making you um, holy, not just justified, but like working on your character and so forth. 
and like, well, there's still work that needs to be done, so it's going to be done, and then not so much to pay for your salvation, which has been paid for, but more of just the work of God on your the, your person, like sanctification, so to speak. So that's kind of, but I could be way off as far as just technically like what um, purgatory is from the Catholic sense. But. Yeah, per, uh, it's kind of like limbo. It's just kind of like okay. this neutral zone, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, there's this TV show once called The Good Place, you know, where they talk about heaven as the good place, and there's the bad place, and then there's the middle place, which is just kind of like, meh, you know, like it's not heaven, you know, it's not paradise, but it's not torture. It's, you know, and they paint it as like some town in Kansas, you know, where there's three movies to watch and, you know, just boring and stale, but, yeah, you know, it's just kind of this idea where the messed up part about it is you, you can't really work off your debt. Others have to do it for you. Like hmm. some of you know, some of your issues in purgatory are taken care of by your family praying for you. Mm-hmm. It's one of the ways that uh, indulgences are still sold to this mm-hmm. day. I'm sure yeah. you heard about those. Right, yeah. You know, there's the ones the certificates in the past that were really corrupt, yeah. Right. Um, but they still sell them to this day in the form of mass. You can go to the church and say, Hey, you know, here's a certain, you know, fifty dollar donation. Say a mass and you know my wife's name, my dead wife's name, and so whenever they do that, the priest is essentially opening up what they call the treasury of merit, and that's every good work that Mary and all the saints have done is in there, mm-hmm. and they pull out some of that good juju and they apply it to your dead wife's account. Wow, yeah, this is, you know, and, and again, most Catholics don't even know this stuff. Mm-hmm. They don't. Uh, but it's their official doctrine. It's what they officially teach, you know? Hmm. And so, but anyway, I digress. Uh, so you started reading the Bible. Yes. And so realized I've never really read the Bible and as I'm kind of going through it, you know, I started in Matthew and mm-hmm. just was working my way through the gospels and was like, this is different. Like, this is not what I was taught. Hmm. This isn't what I think. Mm-hmm. Like, this is really different. And so, I'd go to church services. And again, I could go to church services usually twice a day. Oh, wow. Like it was, like I said, when I say they got good programming, they got good programming. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of it was just Bible studies, things like that. Mm-hmm. And so I'd go to these church services and I'd start to ask questions, but genuinely inquisitive questions like, you know, hey, how does this work? What does this mean? Not, you know, asking questions, trying to poke holes in your faith. Mm-hmm. That's how I would often do it. Yeah. Um, so I'm learning and I'm thinking and, uh, you know, then I had this moment one day, don't remember the day, uh, but I was sitting in the day room and I was sitting in the TV area and wasn't watching TV. I was reading my Bible and I was reading second Peter and it was reading about, uh, God's divine nature and, you know, well, let me back up and put it this way. The Bible is full of lists, all kinds of lists. And there's some in, you know, Second uh, Timothy, there's some in Colossians, uh, some in Romans that will talk about the, the deeds of the flesh, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, greed, mm-hmm. anger, wrath, malice, you know, all these things that the Christian is supposed to put away. 
Mm-hmm. And when I would read those lists, there were checklists. It was, yep, that was me, 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 describing me to a T. And so I was reading about God's divine nature in the first chapter of Second Peter, you know, and about excellence and kindness and love and yeah. uh, how all these things can be added to you. And I remember thinking, like, you know, I want that. Like, I'm, I'm sick of being who I am. Mm-hmm. I'm sick of this life that I'm living. It's not working. And so I prayed to God for the first time in 20-something years. Couldn't even tell you how long, at least 20. And it wasn't a salvation prayer, you know, or, or anything like that. But I just kind of cried out to God, you know, quietly and in my mind. Uh, and I begged him to be real. Because uh, if he wasn't, that I didn't have any hope. And I feel that at that time, God gave me what I call the gift of illumination. He really opened my eyes at that moment to where I was, now I'm starting to understand what I'm reading in the Bible. And it's really making sense, you know. And that goes on for about two more weeks. The gift of illumination, as in like meaning... Nothing else is left, so you're just turning to him. So what do you mean by elimination? Or No, just that, so that idea of, you know, Jesus teaches in parables, right? And they're confusing. And even the apostles are like, why, you know, what's going on? He's like, well, so people don't understand. You know, and still to this day, people don't understand the parables. Uh, but I feel like, you know, with that gift of illumination where my eyes are open, oh, it's like I'm reading a parable. I see what you mean. Right. Yeah. And you under, you, oh, you that's what it. he's talking about, right. you know. And I'm starting to understand. Okay, right. You know, not just in my head, but in my heart. Right. What all this means. And it's making more and more sense. And, right. you know, God is seeming more and more real. And about two weeks later was... I don't remember the exact day. It was sometime in early November, I know that, of 2016. Uh, you know, I get down on my knees in my cell in the middle of the night and just, I was crushed by the weight of my sin, you know, because I was a psychopath or a sociopath. I think sociopath. Mm-hmm. For most of my life, like I, especially when I was in addiction and during those crime years, I just didn't care. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I had no remorse for anything I did. I didn't care who I hurt. Didn't bother me at all, mm-hmm. you know. And it's like you know, eighteen, twenty years of, you know, the guilt from everything I'd done. It all just crushed me at once. Mm-hmm. And hmm. I just cried out to God, you know, begged Him to forgive me, begged Him to save me. Was crying, started confessing everything I could think of. Fell asleep crying. And when I woke up the next morning, it was like this huge weight off has been lifted from my shoulders. Mm-hmm. It was all those years of just guilt and anger and rage. It was gone. Mm-hmm. Just gone. And I can't really describe how it felt, you know, other than that. And, and also it felt really weird, you know. Wake up one morning and realize everything that you thought your entire life was wrong. Hmm. Yeah. Great. Well, now what? <laughs> uh, listen, now what? Now I want to know what's right, you know? And so 
I dug in deep to the Bible. Um, and that was one of the things that really, really like almost proved the existence of God to me is I had have, I would have these revelations reading the scriptures and, you know, for example, uh, Psalm 23, mm-hmm. uh, or is it, no, 22 is the crucifixion Psalm. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. 23 is the Lord's my shepherd, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So 22, the one before that, um, you know, as I'm sitting there reading it and I, I read one of those verses about, you know, how, you know, they cast my, they cast lots for my garments and I'm like, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. And so I flip back to the gospels and, oh yeah, they, they did that with Jesus. And so going back and forth and I'm like thinking to myself, I think this is talking about Jesus on the cross this psalm mm-hmm. but I know it's written hundreds of years before and so I go through and I just do this analysis and I break down like verse by verse what they could possibly be talking about and it just blew me away so I showed it to one of the volunteers the next day and he was like yeah that's pretty good he's like that's exactly what it is you know it's a prophetic psalm and of course I mean my mind was blown like I thought I was the first person to ever figure it out you know it's common common enough knowledge and in Christian back and Christian theology, but I, I got that from from God. I was in a locked room with no windows. I didn't have a concordance. I didn't have the internet. I didn't have any commentaries. Like that was revealed to me from God, and just so many instances like that of just studying the Bible and reading and just really hearing God. Uh, you know, a lot of times I miss, I miss jail in a, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that I was institutionalized or anything, but I never felt closer to God than when I was in jail. Hmm. I spent probably five or six hours every day at least reading or studying the Bible. Never felt closer to God, you know, and... Mm-hmm. You know, because out here there's a lot of noise, a lot of distractions, and yeah. didn't have to deal with that in there. You know, I had food, people did my laundry. Like it's, mm-hmm. you know, I had a little job. I was a trustee. You know, so I'd work and do my little job, and then I'd go to class and go to church service, and I'd study the Bible. Mm-hmm. And by the time I had gotten out of jail, I, man, I knew that thing cover to cover. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to Mission Gate because, you know, my family was proud of me and I'd been reconnecting with my mom and talking to her and she'd come to visit me a couple times. And, um, you know, they said, hey, that's great. But, you know, whenever you get out of here, you're you're not coming home. Mm-hmm. You're not going to stay with us, you know. They'd heard that this time will be different from me before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't blame them for that. So... I didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew I was going to be homeless when I got out, so I didn't have anywhere to go. So Mission Gate, you know, they'd come in there a few times a week, and they said, well, hey, you know, we've got, you can come live with us. You know, we've got this discipleship program for people getting out of jail and prison, and we help you get a job and get your clothes and all that stuff and, uh, you know, do Bible studies and teach you, and you can live with us for nine months, and, um, you know, we'll help you get back on your feet. And so I applied to go there, and I was initially denied because of my criminal background. Hmm. And I 
tested God at that moment. Now, I, I didn't know at the time that you're not supposed to do that, but, um, you know, I was kind of like a, a new Christian, and I was like, all right, well, you know what? I got denied. I thought it was this was it, and I was like, well, I'm just going to put it up to you. You know, you say you're going to take care of me. You say you're going to pave the way. You know, it's time to prove it, you know. It's time to show me what you got. And I still didn't know what was happening with my case. I should have gotten in prison for 15 years is what I should have got. And it's what they wanted at one point. Uh, but I ended up getting five years of probation instead. Hmm. And not only that, there's a few different kinds of probation, but I got the kind that when I completed it, the felonies are off my record. Hmm. Like I'm not a convicted felon. Yeah. It'll always show I was charged, but not convicted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's all through the grace of God. You know, I had a public defender who showed up to half of my court appearances and would never answer phone calls. Mm-hmm. Probably spent 10 minutes with her, though, you know, throughout six months. And to get a, you know, a deal like that, it was, it just didn't make sense. But Mission Gate was a big part of it. Uh, you know, I had my approval letter and decided to stipulate me. They say, all right, you have to go to the Mission Gate, though. If you get kicked out or anything like that, you come right back here you'll probably go to prison. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I get denied and I kind of just put it in God's hands. And a few weeks later, one of the volunteers asked me, hey, you know, did you hear back? And I told him I got denied. And I was like, oh, you know, God's got it. You know, maybe that bed will go to somebody who needs it more. And so he went in and talked to Trish, the, the executive director, and uh, said, hey, you should really look at this guy again. Give him a second chance. And so he came in a week later, and he was like, hey, this is Trisha's number. She wants you to call her on Tuesday at, like, 2 o'clock. And I was like, okay. So a few days later, I called her, and we had a 5-10 minute interview on the phone, and she approved me. And that was Valentine's Day uh, of 2017. Hmm. And then a month later, I was released. Okay. I uh, didn't know. You know, I was going to court expecting another continuance, and they are like, yeah, you'll be out today. Hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I need to check on something real quick. I got guests staying up at the... Sure. I, okay. I think everything's cool. Um, so, um, so I guess like just listening um, to everything. Um, so sometimes, you know, I just your conversion experience of like the load of guilt being lifted, it reminds me of my own situation when I was 18. Cause, and I wasn't, I think, you know, I grew up in church. So surely I heard about um, the cross and Jesus dying. You know, I, I'm, I know I did, um, but I don't know. I don't remember really thinking about that. I just remember coming to the end of myself and um, and just thinking, you know, God saved me from what I have become, you know, and then uh, I had experienced just that load of guilt lifted and just felt as light as a feather and the new things opened up to me, you know, the Bible and Christian things, going to church and so forth. Um, but I've, I've kind of wondered, like, um, I've, I've thought, you know, are there's things I've read in the Bible that seem to... Um, talk about the power of hearing about Jesus dying for sins and so forth. And like hearing that message 
has a transforming effect, you know, and that it needs to be connected to conversion. Like, were you thinking at all about like atonement and Jesus dying for for the for your sins on the cross, and that's the reason why you can turn to Him and so forth? Or was it like, man, I'm just at the end myself. I have no no nothing, no other hope. Please save me from who I am and so forth. Or like, what was that like for you? It was the the second one. Okay. It was, you know, I knew Jesus. You know, Jesus died for your sins. He died on the cross. Just even just those two sentences. You know, had yeah. been I'd heard hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. You know, but yeah. my heart was hardened. Mm-hmm. You know, my my ears were closed. Uh, you know, I was under God's passive wrath for most of my life, and that's, that's scary stuff. It's you know, I say there's there's two kinds of wrath. Um, there's active wrath, right? Fire and brimstone, right? Mm-hmm. Which is good, right? That'll light you up. That'll, oh, crap, I need to stop doing what I'm doing, you know? But passive wrath, Romans 1 talks about this passive wrath, this yeah. idea of, I don't want you, God. I want your stuff. And God says, all right. He gives you what you want. Right. And, you know, I remember being visibly, you know, and audibly shook, like when I heard the gospel in jail for the first time. Like it wasn't the first time I'd heard the gospel, but it was the first time I heard the gospel. Mm-hmm. That makes sense, right? You know, you can hear it for years, but not hear it. And was that at what point was that? Like before you had that conversion experience, or afterwards? I would say it was during that two weeks that gift okay. of illumination, that idea. I of, see. Right. Okay. During that time. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I really did have this idea of what I call, like, the, the Catholic view of justification, where it's it's a lot of good deeds and bad deeds. You know, mm-hmm. that's, like, how they teach it. There's mortal sins and venial sins. Mm-hmm. You know, venial sins being the, you know, hey, you know, you sped or you cheated on a test or you did, you know, yeah, you sinned, but it wasn't, like, a crazy bad sin. You know, you just kind of broke your relationship with God, you know. But mortal sins, you lose your salvation when you commit one of those. Mm-hmm. Like murder. You know, you can get it back through confession and repentance. Um, but you also kind of got to do your own atonement, you know. It's like when you go and confess to the priests and they say, well, go say this many prayers, you know. it's You're having to pay off that debt. And so most I'd say this: most Christians believe you just got to be a good person to go to heaven. Hmm. You know, they, I think most Christians believe, you know, I just the good scale just needs to outweigh the bad scale a little bit. You mm-hmm. know, but there are no scales. You know, mm-hmm. and I didn't really understand that till you know God had opened my eyes. Um, you know, it was always just kind of like, yeah, yeah, Jesus died for my sins, sure, whatever. But it was more of I was in the deepest, darkest pit, and I couldn't see anything. And when God did show up, that you know, even that light, as small as it was, it lit everything up. You know, I could pull out my lighter right now, and you know, well, well lit room. If I light my lighter right now, it's not really going to change this environment. But if you go in the bathroom where there's no windows, mm-hmm. and you turn off the lights and you close the door and you light that lighter. 
going to light up the whole room. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's what it was like for me when God showed up. So it wasn't more this idea of, you know, I was thankful that he died for my sins and, but it was just more that I have nowhere else to go. I have nowhere to look, but up, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you're not real, I just want to die in this hole. You know, like it was, it was like that. Hmm. Now afterwards, you know, getting the head knowledge of knowing like, wow, Jesus really did die for me. You know, it's, it's kind of that idea. There's a couple of parables of it too, that idea of, you know, those who are forgiven more are more grateful, mm-hmm. you know, that idea of if, if you owe me $10 and, you know, the person sitting next to you owes me a million and I forgive both of your debts, who's more thankful? Mm-hmm. Probably the guy who I forgave a million dollars, you know, so he might want to do things for me, you know, do some favors for me. And that's right. When I really think about everything that I did and how that was all just wiped clean, it just fills my heart with gratitude and it just makes me want to serve. You know, it's, I would kind of tell this analogy with a lot of the guys in prison, you know, you know, let's say you got a, you're about to get life in prison and I go up there and I say, well, you know what, I'll, your honor, let Mr. Smith go. I'll go in prison and I'll do life for him. And I said, you'd be pretty thankful, wouldn't you? You know, would you come to visit me in prison? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you put money on my books so I could buy food? Are you kidding? I put $100 a week on there, you know? It's like, yeah, you're not serving because you feel compelled to. You're doing it out of just this overflowing thankfulness. So, um, so I can see how through that experience, you would have confidence that there's more than just the material world, like you've had an experience with the spiritual, with God. Um, and through that, you would realize that God is a forgiving God, like he's good, not like some kind of a, an evil God. Um, but what about the Bible? What gives you confidence that the Bible is like spelling things out the way that they are rather than, um, cause it's a little bit of a separate thing. Mm. I mean, it describes a forgiving God, but it goes into a lot of different details on this and that. Anything in particular that, you know, like uh, makes the Bible gives you confidence, I guess. Oh yeah, definitely. So a lot of it has to do with how it was compiled. Like when you look at the Bible, it's not a linear story, you know, you don't want to read from Genesis in this book and because it doesn't follow a linear path. It bounces around a lot. And, you know, I've got a couple Bible reading plans that you can read the Bible in the order the the events as they happen. It's kind of pretty interesting, but it's this idea of it's spread out over thousands of years, all these books. Mm-hmm. And they're written by you know, the 60, they're written by what, 20 something, 30 something different authors, human authors. Yeah. Um, but they all agree, like the, it follows the story, you know, and it just meshes together so well. It's kings and fishermen and, you know, writing this stuff. And I, 
this, this was an example I'd give to a lot of the guys in prison ministry. I'd say, you know, there's 20 people in this room. I'd be like, imagine if I told you all to go home tonight and to just write a short story, write, you know, a two-page short story, and you bring it back to me tomorrow. Now imagine if I took your short story and I wrote chapter one on it, and then I took Bill's short story over there and I wrote chapter two on it, and I did all that with all 20 of your short stories and I put it together. Now imagine I read it, and it's a story, like the flows, like the characters' names were the same, and you know, where chapter two picks up, you know, chapter three picks up right where chapter two left off. I'd say that'd be pretty incredible, wouldn't it? Everybody goes, oh, yeah, that'd be weird. That'd be freaky weird, you know? Okay, now imagine that happens, except you guys have never met. You're spread out all over the world, and you lived hundreds and sometimes thousands of years apart. That's what the Bible's like. You know, when you watch this story, you know, this theme go through every book, and it just blows me away. But the biblical authors were familiar with the other writings. So like those, for example, the gospel writers were probably familiar with Psalm 22. So they might have seen Jesus identifying with um, the suffering fellow in Psalm 22. And, um, and they might... So it's a little bit different, I think, because... Um, uh, it's like almost a continuation. Um, you know, they're steeped in Scripture, and they are adding to it, maybe unknowingly adding to it, you know. but um, Well, here's what I would contend. Um, the apostles are idiots. <laughs> you know, I mean that not as a harsh, but right. everything is always going over their heads mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. They just do not seem to get it. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus will tell him, you know, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. He's talking about bread. You didn't get him bread? He's mad that we didn't get him bread. Jesus is like, why are you talking about bread, you know? He's got to remind them of everything. You know, they had to send the Holy Spirit to bring these things to remembrance. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no way they made those connections, I don't think. Okay. I really don't, you know, and... At least the gospel writers, you know. Um, But, so, just taking a step back, too, looking at the genealogy like this, I always like to tell people that the Bible's like Star Wars. I'm sure you've seen Star Wars. Yeah. So you've seen the originals, right, with Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader? Mm -hmm. Okay, did you see or hear of the prequels where it was like Darth Vader was a little kid? Um, Yeah, I've seen like one of those, I think, yeah. And so then... A few years ago, they made some new ones. I don't know if you you probably heard of those, right? Yeah. Well, they had, you know, some of the old characters were in there, but, you know, it was, the new bad guy was Princess Leia's son. Okay. Right? And so when you watch Star Wars, what you're doing is you're not, you know, there's a whole galaxy, there's billions of planets and people, but what you're following is one family throughout years, decades, lifetimes. Mm-hmm. So you're following this family tree, the Skywalkers, mm-hmm. and that is pretty much what the Bible is. Mm-hmm. You know, you start with the first two people, right, Adam and Eve, and you know they screw everything up. You know, everything's great for the first three and a half, two and a half chapters, and we they screwed up, and 
And then God makes the first promise in the Bible, which is actually to Satan. Mm-hmm. And it's the promise to whoop him, to kick his butt. Mm-hmm. The promise says, you know, I'm going to put enmity, strife, beef, bad blood, you know, however you need to look at it, between you and the seed of the woman and her descendants. And her descendant is going to whoop your butt, you know, crush mm-hmm. you with the, the heel. And so then you follow that family tree. You know, then it gets brought, well, it's going to be in this tribe, but it's going to be through this line. And so you're following this family lineage, you know, and it gets dicey at some points. There's there's points where it's down to like one child. And if this child dies, the promise is broken. It doesn't matter. Hmm. God's a liar. Mm-hmm. You know, if God's a liar, then throw it all out the window. It's either all true or none of it is. You know, I think it's in one of the kings, I don't remember, but it was down to one child, and I don't remember the names, but the 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 midwife or the the nanny, you know, kept this child alive in a back room of the palace for like six years. Mm-hmm. Never left this one room, you know, until it was time for the coronation because the, the, the queen was having everybody murdered. Mm-hmm. And so when he was old enough, they took him out and he became king. And right. you know, think six years with a baby, if anybody hears you cry, you know, if anybody finds you. Mm-hmm. And so the, the Old Testament writers didn't really know what they were doing there, you know? Right. Yeah, they were just keeping the royal secession going and so yeah. forth. Right. And, and giving an account of things, their history and so forth, mm-hmm. the way that they did. And um, But you're watching this family tree, you know, Ruth. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, Ruth is what Jesus' seven or eight greats, grandmother or something like something that. Something like that, yeah. You know, and so you realize that most of the main characters in these books moving forward are Jesus's great great grandparents. Yeah. You know, however many greats greats there are. Yeah. Um, prophecy really leads me to believe in the reliability of the Bible. You know, accurately predicting things that you know, like King David, like accurately describing crucifixion to a T. I think. 1,200 years before crucifixion was invented. Hmm. 1,000 years, maybe 800, something along those lines. Even on the low end, 800. It's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and all these, these prophecies that were made by men who probably didn't really know what they were writing. You know, when you really, really think about it. And... Well, let me ask you about... Um your ex- your experience of God now, so I can identify with you of having a pretty dramatic experience, and then um, and now it's like maybe I'm just in it so often that it's not the contrast, you know, like the candle in the bathroom compared to the candle in the lit room, and um, maybe I'm just not recognizing God's, you know, experiencing God now. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I wish there was a little bit more connection that I can, um, you know, just know uh, God is with me or something. So it's not so much like just going off of what I've been told, you know, reading it in the Bible. Well, you know, but rather an experiential type of thing. Um, But 
but maybe that's just how it is. You know, like things in the Bible um, may have happened over hundreds, thousands, you know, and they're kind of compressed for us. And maybe it isn't that you encounter God um, like every day, you know, maybe that's not normal, but rather um, you just live your life before him and he allows things just to flow and things just to happen as they do. But he steps in now and then uh, like those, that time of conversion or maybe another need or something, you know, where it just seems like, well, I've experienced something like God answering prayer in some kind of a profound way or something like that. Um, but maybe it's not meant to be just a, a normal everyday thing. But anyway, what's what's experiencing God like for you? Is it um, is it just like kind of well being on the day by day service, reading the Bible type of thing, or is it feel like a more vital connection of um, hearing from Him or somehow? you know, experiencing him in some kind of way or, um, or just what is it like for you? Like, you know, since that time and, and now. So there's really kind of two ways to answer that question. Um, <clears throat> you know, when I was at mission gate, you know, that kind of in, intense experience, like conversion, mm -hmm. um, that maybe not that same level intense of intensity, but just below it, mm -hmm. that was most days. Hmm. You know, because a lot of the men coming through Mission Gate were brand new Christians, if they were Christians at all, mm -hmm. you know, and getting to walk with people and getting to baptize people and, you know, seeing men reconnect with their children that I haven't seen in years, mm -hmm. you know, and, and things like that. And, you know, I got to see miracles every day, hmm. you know, and yeah. got to be a part of, you know, conversions and, and sanctifications and helping people and helping them grow and becoming the men that God wanted them to be. And so, you know, when you're, you know, in the mud like that, you know, I joke around like, um, you know, thinking that you're drafted into God's army, right? And you're wanting to push back against Satan. Um, it's in, it's intense every day. Hmm. It is. Um, yeah. But I left Mission Gate four months ago, and mm -hmm. so I'm not doing that daily discipleship of 20, 30 men yeah. and, and living with them and, like, really, really walking with them. You know, Mission Gate reminded me of the early church. It was, now we're going to live together, and we're going to, you know, I'm going to show you how this is done. You know, I'm going to lead by example, and we're going to figure this out together. Um It hasn't been like that for the past, let's see, I lived there in August, so about four and a half, five months. Uh, I feel a lot more distant from God. You know, I still Bible study with some friends and some people from my community group at church every now and then. Um, you know, I'm still staying the word. Not like I was, though. Um, you know, I used to preach two, three nights a week. Uh, or give messages or teach Bible studies, that kind of thing. So I was always studying, you know, mm -hmm. something. I'd spend two, three hours a day still studying in the scriptures. Now it's maybe a 
couple hours every other day, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, I've been growing further apart from God mm-hmm. and it's not as intense as it was. So when it was, when you were at Mission Gate, it was pretty intense, but it sounds like not something very sustainable, just the lifestyle of it and so forth. But now, you know, life is more sustainable, perhaps, um, as far as like uh, just the, you know, act- workload and stress and so forth. But you don't feel as close or. Um, so I, I guess I'm just kind of wondering, you know, like for the average American Christian, you know, how are we how are we living? Is this like the way we're supposed to be living or is like. Should we be um, like our, our priorities kind of um, not quite right, and um, we're missing out, I suppose, and we have life pretty easy. It's pretty calm, maybe. I mean, I know even in middle class, upper middle class, they're still suffering people, everyone, they're dealing with something. But um, yeah, I'm just wondering what the ideal Christian life should look like. <laughs> That's a good question. I would definitely say, uh, yeah, the, the average American life is not the, the, what the Christian life should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, John MacArthur gave a couple sermons a couple years ago that he gotten a lot of, you know, caught a lot of flack for. But I think he was right. You know, when he people would say, "God bless America," I'd say, "I don't think he can." You know, look at us. We you know we kill babies and we're all greedy and materialistic, like. If God blesses America, what does that say about the holiness of God? Right. You know, that he's given his stamp of approval on all this stuff we're doing. Right. And it's tough to think about, you know, but I feel most people are more concerned with material possessions than spiritual ones. Right. And that everyone wants it wants not just exuberant living, but they want security. Mm-hmm. And that's, so that's what we look to, our retirement accounts or, or whatever investments. I would even say, so if you're Christian, you have a ministry. Or if you don't, you, you need to have one. And even like if, if, if you're married and you have a, you know, a wife and two kids, like that's your ministry. You know, God has entrusted that woman to you. Like, you know, the marriage, like, love your bride as Christ loved the church. Like, what? That's how you got to love your wife? The way Christ loved the church and sacrificed everything, you know? How you're supposed to train up these your children in the way of holiness? Like, it's a big responsibility. That's a big ministry, you know? I would say, you know, like at Mission Gate, I, like I had my 20, 25 person flock and, you know, we had, we had senior residents and, and house leaders and things there. And so I would tell like the house leader, like, you know, the house you're running, like, you know, there's three other guys there except you, like, that's your three man flock, you know, right now, that's your ministry mm-hmm. to walk with these people and to teach them and live with them. And so even if it's just a wife and kids, like that's your ministry, like that's, what you know, and how often do most men read the Bible with their wife, with their children? Mm-hmm. You know, 
teaching them and studying them. Probably not very often, you mm-hmm. know, or it could be a ministry at your local church, you know, or a, a food pantry ministry, you know, serve, serving the Lord in some way, you know, God did not call you and save you. I say, just so you could have a nice day. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's got work for you to do. So, and I, I was just going to say, and I don't think most American Christians are taking that work seriously. Yeah. If thinking about it at all. Right. How's things with your family? It sounded like when you were getting out of jail, it was uh, kind of estranged still. They were probably excited about the changes that have been made, but like, have, are things better now with? Things are a lot better. Uh, I've actually, I actually got to lead my mom to Christ. Uh, wow. Which was pretty great. Hmm. Um, you know, probably the best thing that came out of it, you know. So that's probably hard to lead a church goer to Christ. It's, it is the <laughs> toughest thing in the world. Yeah. You know, she would tell you like, we went out to a movie and then we, we sat down for dinner afterwards and, you know, I'd kind of ask her a question like, Hey, you know, if you died right now, would you go to heaven or hell? Oh, I'd go to heaven. Okay. Why? You know, I'd ask her stuff like that and, and things like that. And it was the hardest thing I've ever had to do to look at my mom and say, mom, I'm, I think you're going to go to hell. I don't think you know God. You think you know God, but you you don't. Mm-hmm. And again, that's, I can't be 100% certain, but just from what I'm seeing and hearing, this is really what I feel. And you were basing it on what, on her confidence, like her confidence was not in God and his salvation, but more on her good works. Is that kind of what you're, you were basing that on or on her lifestyle or something else? or All of it, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't think she really understood atonement and you know she was one of those people that say like I, I haven't sinned today mm-hmm. you know right and <clears throat> I can't remember what, what preacher I think it was Matt Chandler you know broke it down to you know every breath you take is a sin hmm. you know where he's you know if you're in rebellion, you're just constantly in sin. I guess is what he means to say. Well, you're supposed to love you, love the God, love love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Yeah, that's the first commandment. Mm-hmm. Jesus says it's the greatest commandment. You've never loved God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Mm-hmm. Not for one second, you haven't done that. Mm-hmm. So if you're not doing that, you're breaking the commandment, right? That would that would be his logic. Mm-hmm. You know. Every breath you take, sin, one of the definitions is falling short, miss, right. missing the target. Right. Well, you miss the target in that breath. Mm-hmm. Oh, you just missed it again. Right. You know, and like that, that idea, it doesn't really break my heart. It fills me with gratitude because mm-hmm. it makes me think of the other side of the coin. Like, well, Jesus did. Then. Jesus was really in perfect communion with God. Mm-hmm. He, all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, he loved him. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, how awesome is that? You know, right? But it's one of those things. It's like the more broken I get, the more grateful I get, mm-hmm. and the more I love God, mm-hmm. and the more I love God and understand Him, the more broken I get because I realize how much I really do fall short. Mm-hmm. You know, and so with your mom, you kind of put that in front of her that where you that you you thought she just really 
you know, wasn't in God's grace. She wasn't saved. Or so, you know. yeah, she, she was like most people. I think most people think Christianity is hereditary, at least in America. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, my parents were Christian, so I'm a Christian. Right. You know, and I'm a good person and I do just fine. And Now, a lot of Catholic people would say, well, Jesus died for our sins. I mean, that's kind of common knowledge among Catholics, right? Well, yeah, they'll say that, but then they ask him, like, well, what does that mean? Yeah. How? How does the atonement work? Again, I don't really know necessarily how the atonement works either, but what does it mean for Jesus to die for your sins? You know? So how did your mom respond then? She was offended. Yeah. She told me to take it back. Okay. I told her I couldn't. And, you know, luckily, you know, I'd been studying the scriptures for about a year at that point, and... You know, I don't know all the answers to all the questions, but I had all the answers to all her questions that day. Hmm. And it was just one of those, you know, the timing was perfect. Like, you know, it was kind of like doing apologetics right there in the moment, Mm -hmm. you know, and she'd ask, well, how does this work? How does that work? And, um, I think it took her uh, six months, maybe to a year before whatever her conversion was actually happened. But now she'll, she'll say now, she's like, he was right. I didn't know God, mm-hmm. you know, and she'll say the things that I used to think were funny and love, they disgust me now. And, mm-hmm. you know, it took me probably a good year to get her to start reading the Bible, you know, mm-hmm. start off just listening to it. Well, listen to these sermons, you know, and just think about it. And Yeah. So, um, and then is she still Roman Catholic? Is so she's changed out to a Protestant or something. She, she's she's more Protestant. Um, she she'll still go to a Roman Catholic service mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the time, just because she likes the familiar familiarity of it. Mm-hmm. It's just you know it feels like like right. home. You know she right. she knows what they're doing. Uh, she has a lot of trouble with fellowship and with bringing in people. She she skips around churches a lot. Okay. Um, keeping people at arm's length. You know, she wants what I call anonymous grace. Okay. Um, it's a battle we've been fighting, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. Uh, but she's been going to this smaller church near her home pretty consistently. And, you know, kind of that idea when someone hurts you, you know, then it's like, well, I'm, I'm leaving. Or, you know, you hear something at that church you don't like. Well, I'm leaving. Right. And... When I say not like, I mean just because it it offends you. The gospel is offensive. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so she didn't have an understanding of atonement, how it works and so forth. But like someone who might be in like a more solid church, they might have an understanding, okay, well, this, this is a sacrifice. My sins have been paid for and so forth. And yet... It may seem like it um, just, I don't know, their lifestyle just kind of seems like, mm-hmm. why are you wasting your life? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, and it's, it's confusing a little bit. That's something that I've had a lot of conversations with, with people about is this idea of, you know what? You can be saved by God and you can go to heaven and you can have terrible theology. Mm-hmm. I'm talking like the worst yeah. theology ever. Right. But somewhere there's a line where it's, 
all right, you don't have terrible theology anymore, right? Now you're, now you're a heretic. Now you're teaching stuff that's contrary to what God teaches, you know? Mm-hmm. Where's that line? I don't, I don't think you can clearly find it. I think you can, the best you can do is just knowing whether it's over the line or not. Okay. You know, like whenever I, you know, hear about Mormons, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know where the line is, but I know they're past it. Mm. You know? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, I guess we ought to wrap up. Um, so you never, you, you didn't experience prison from being in it. You were just, it was just the county jail, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Um, was well, there anything else, I guess, um, like, um, I don't know. Is there anything else that you want to bring up here before we just wrap up? It's been a really good conversation. I just oh. really appreciate it. It's just, yeah, uh, definitely. I'd really, love to come back too sometime. Yeah, or, sure. Or just have, you know, right. breakfast or lunch and just talk theology. Uh, you know, the one thing I, I, I always encourage believers in is you have to get comfortable with mystery. Mystery is going to be a prerequisite of your faith. It has to be. You know, at the heart of every doctrine is a paradox. You know, you don't really know how it's going to fit together, you know. Was Jesus 100% man? Yeah. Was he 100% God? Yeah. How does that work? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, you know, who wrote Colossians? Did Paul write it? Yeah. Did God write it? Yeah. How the heck does that work? Mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, right. Armenianism and Calvinism, right? You know, the, am I ch- chosen by God, predestined before he laid the foundation of the earth to be called his son? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am. Well, do I have a responsibility, a personal responsibility, to repent from my sins and to call on God? Well, yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. How does that mesh? I don't know. God knows. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. So you have to be comfortable with a lot of mystery. Right. You know, <clears throat> I, I can't remember who it was, but I heard Galatians 5.20 or 5.21 is great. You know, Paul, when Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, um, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. You know, Paul didn't even know it worked, you know? I've died with Christ. Well, but I'm, but I live, but, but not me, but actually Christ did me. Mm-hmm. Like Paul didn't really know how it worked either. Mm-hmm. You know, I died, but, but, but I live, but it's not really me, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. I've, the way I've th- thought of it is like the Bible is a real practical book. It gives us what we need in order to function, to be in relationship with God, to receive his grace but it doesn't answer our curiosity about how God works, how the world works. Um, I mean, it, it, we're just kind of boxed in as creatures from being able to grasp these things, but he's given to us in a simple way we can understand what we need in mm-hmm. order to to live. And yeah. Well, thanks, Stephen. Appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. Mm-hmm.